Hi, and welcome everybody. My name is Viren, and I'm one of the social media editors for Journal Chest. Today I'm bringing to you the Journal Club webinar discussing the study, the impact of esophageal pressure measurement on pulmonary hypertension diagnosis in patients with obesity. I'm joined by the study authors, Dr. Galeb Kirfan and Dr. Adriano Tonelli. Uh, welcome, both of you, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Viren. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So um, I have no conflicts to declare, uh, but I would love for Dr. Kirfan to introduce himself. Thank you so much for having us uh, here today. My, I am Galib Kirfan, and I'm currently a pulmonary and critical care physician and pulmonary hypertension specialist at Spectrum Health, uh, joining you today from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm very happy to be here along with uh, Dr. Tanelli, who is my mentor, and uh, we're very excited to discuss our study, which I conducted while, while I was a pulmonary and critical care fellow in Cleveland Clinic. Thank you for having us today. Awesome. Um, my name is Adriano Tonelli. I'm, I'm a staff here at the um, uh, Cleveland Clinic in the Respiratory Institute. Um, I have no uh, conflicts of uh, interest to uh, disclose and I appreciate the invitation and uh, look forward for a good discussion about this uh, study. Amazing. And here's the DOI uh, for those of you looking at the screen. Uh, this uh, journal article will be uh, released in September 2022, so this month's edition. All right, so I wanted to start off with the literature that is known on this topic. So we're talking about esophageal pressure measurements, uh, and at the same time, doing right heart catheterizations to understand hemodynamic changes. So what is the known literature and what's the gap we're trying to address? Uh, I can take that question. So um, the, um, the literature uh, on the use of esophageal pressure to estimate the intrathoracic pressure is mostly in the medical ICU, uh, particularly for adjusting uh, PEEP in uh, subjects with uh, obesity. Uh, there's really no literature as far as we know in the use of these to adjust the uh, intravascular uh, pulmonary pressures uh, during Rahar catheterization. The idea of the study um, came um, through one of the uh, co-authors, uh, Dr. Kati Poglu, who was in the ICU and put a uh, esophageal balloon in a patient, an obese patient, to adjust the uh, PEEP. And the patient also had a swan. And uh, he noted that the changes in esophageal pressure um, uh, also appeared to affect uh, the uh, pulmonary pressures, inflating, uh, elevating the values of the uh, pulmonary uh, pressures. As it, um, the intrathoracic pressure increased, the the, the, the pulmonary pressure was also uh, elevated and it's in that particular patient and came with the idea, oh, it's something that we could also look um, in the Raja catheterization lab in uh, patients with uh, obesity. And so we uh, did a preliminary study that was published in the Annals uh, of um, um, Thoracic Medicine, uh, the White Journal. Uh, it was a preliminary study on 19 patients, patients with obesity that we showed that uh, measurements of vagal pressure has a great impact in the uh, hemodynamic classification. But at that time, we used a 
a more complex, um, sophisticated tool to uh, record the uh, esophageal pressure and the uh, pulmonary pressures with a completely separated device and, 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 and a more uh, sophisticated system that was not really applicable. Uh, so for this study, uh, we moved these uh, to um, just a regular monitor that we use to do the uh, Raha catheterization. So it can certainly be done in any catheterization lab, the measurements of vagal pressure, if you know how to place a vagal balloon uh, and be sure that's appropriately placed. So the, the main goal of this study was to see whether the intrathoracic pressure uh, has an impact in pulmonary hypertension diagnosis and uh, hemodynamic classification in uh, obese uh, individuals. Perfect. And, and of course, the whole question is, does this change how we address these patients? So we'll get to that with our studies. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think the natural next question here is to understand how the study was designed. And then who are the patients that you included? Who are the ones that you excluded and why? Awesome. So um, I can take this uh, question. Um, this was actually a prospective study. We screened patients who were referred for right heart cath in the outpatient settings, mostly for evaluation of uh, suspected pulmonary hypertension or a re-evaluation of a known uh, pulmonary hypertension diagnosis. We included patients uh, with the obesity uh, defined as BMI more than 30, and those who were found to have elevated mean pulmonary artery pressure during the right heart cath uh, of more than 20 and elevation in the pulmonary artery wedge pressure of more than 12. The reason we selected uh, this subset of patients is because we want to identify a group of patients that would benefit the most from esophageal pressure measurements. And that's, that's why we selected this group of patients. We actually excluded patients who could have other causes for elevation in their intrathoracic pressure. For example, patient with obstructive and patient with restrictive lung disease. And uh, for sure, patients who had uh, contraindication for placement of esophageal uh, balloon catheters. For example, patient with varices, recent surgeries, epistaxis, or latex allergy, or, or the patient whom we suspected that they will have poor tolerance for the procedure. So in a, in a, in a nutshell, after the right heart cath was performed, if the patient was obese, and uh, we noted that they have uh, high pressures we asked them if, would be, if, they would be, if they would be willing uh, to undergo placement of the esophageal uh, uh, catheter. And then we measured the pressure after inserting the catheter and we adjusted uh, all the hemodynamic uh, measurements for the simultaneous measurement of the esophageal uh, pressure. So uh, we were subtracting from the end expiratory measurement uh, mean pulmonary artery pressure, we were subtracting the end expiratory esophageal pressure measurement, and same applies to the wedge and the rest of the measurements. We measured uh, those uh, in the sitting and as well in the supine position, and as well as uh, an average reading across the respiratory cycle in order to account for the respiratory variation in hemodynamic measurements. Perfect. So to just put it very simply, maybe a little too simply, we just removed the you know, esophageal pressure sort of as a marker of extrinsic elevated or non 
cardiorespiratory hemodynamic pressure. So we removed that from what Correct. we are getting in the vascular system and to see what that does to our vascular recordings, right? Fair enough? Yes, 100%. And I mean, if you, we can show table one to see the subset of patients uh, we included in this. Um, yeah. As you can uh, notice here, we included a total of uh, 53 patients and uh, all of them were uh, obese. Uh, the average BMI is uh, 44, which is high. And uh, we presented here the hemodynamic classification based on the conventional and expiratory pulmonary artery pressure measurements that, that the guidelines recommend. And this hemodynamic classification is based on the sixth ward symposium of pulmonary hypertension classification. Uh, patients, the majority, as you can see, of uh, our group of patients has evidence of uh, post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, defined as pulmonary artery pressure uh, more than 20 and which more than 15. Uh, the second largest groups were patients with combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. And a uh, very small uh, number of patients have evidence of pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension. Perfect. Uh, would you like to talk about the sort of um, cardiac um, features in baseline characteristics while we're on table one? Yep. So here we're presenting the uh, uh, baseline uh, function, like baseline pulmonary function test. We have the FEV1 uh, diffusion lung capacity, NT-PRO and PO results. Uh, as you can see, we're also the mean left ventricular ejection fraction was normal in those subset of patients. Uh, uh, we can also see here the distribution of uh, RV uh, dysfunction in those subset. Uh, the majority of them had the normal RV function. Uh, the uh, 20, about 21% of them had evidence of mild RV dysfunction on echo, and around 20% has evidence of moderate to severe RV dysfunction on the echocardiogram. So I think this was super important to me because as an ICU physician, right, we often run into the situations where you're you know, seeing those higher than you expect sort of numbers on SWAN, and then you have RV dysfunction and the question starts, right, is that cycle? Yeah. Is it the chicken or the egg? But this will help understand some of that, right? Uh, okay, great. So my next question is to understand the impact that these esophageal determinations had on measurements of um, numbers for pulmonary hypertension in terms of diagnosis as well. Okay, so... I can take this question if we can see the uh, figure two, uh, the hemodynamic classification. Okay. So again, as I mentioned in the, um, and at the beginning, we used uh, more than one method for uh, classifying the patient uh, uh, in terms of pH hemodynamic classification. On the far left side, you can see the end expiratory pressure measurements, which is the conventional way of how we are uh, actually reporting uh, data from the right heart cath. In the middle, uh, we can see uh, something called the average pressure measurements. And this is uh, where we take an average across three respiratory cycles in order to account for the variation and the respiratory oscillation across the respiratory cycle. And finally, uh, on the far right side of the screen, we can see the adjusted end expiratory pressure measurements. So when we started with the conventional uh, measurements and conventional way to record that, 
we noticed that uh, all of our patients have a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension, and uh, the majority of which, around uh, 40 patients, have uh, elevation in their wedge of more than 15. So they, they have evidence of either post-capillary pulmonary hypertension or combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. Only one patient had evidence of pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension, and two patients have evidence of undifferentiated pulmonary hypertension. Undifferentiated pH is not clearly mentioned in the guidelines, but these are a subset of patients who have a mean pulmonary artery pressure more than 20. Their wedge is less than 15, but their PVR is not more than three. So they could have a PVR of one or PVR of 1.5 or two. So those are patients not clearly defined how to classify them. So, so this is what we are referring to undifferentiated pH here. So as you can notice, once we place the esophageal pressure and we use the adjusted pressure measurements and we eliminated the effect of intrathoracic pressure, we can notice that in up to 12% of, in up, in up to 12 patients, which is around 25%, we eliminated the diagnosis of the pulmonary hypertension. And you can imagine all the stress, the anxiety, and the extra testing that can come along with that. And also, you can notice the significant reduction in the group of patients who were labeled previously as having post-capillary pulmonary hypertension or combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. Those were reduced from around 94% to 19% at the expense of being able to identify few more patients who would be reclassified as pre-capillary pH. And we all understand the importance of that because those are the group of patients who would be benefiting from the use of pulmonary vasodilator in this condition. There's, a, there's an important uh, um, concept here is that when you adjust by the intrathoracic pressure, you adjust the mean pressure and the wedge to the same level. So the transpulmonary gradient doesn't change. Um, therefore, the PVR does not change. Right. Uh, you can only uh, reduce uh, the postcapillary um, uh, component here. So that's why the, mo the most that you see here is a reduction in the postcapillary component um, and, and the precapillary component you do not affect. So the fact that you had a higher number of precapillary at the end is that because you remove the combined, you decrease the combined pre and post. Uh, the transpulmonary gradient doesn't change and the PVR does not change by adjusting for esophageal pressure. Yep, and that's been born in previous studies in healthy individuals as well, that the variation right in uh, pressure is, is not born in vascular resistance. So you can think about it like a vice grip around the chest. This is essentially causing post-capillary increase. And I'm just, I just have the figure one pulled up, uh, which highlights the you know, point you're making if you want to extrapolate on that as well. Yeah, you see in panel B that there is an association uh, with the R of 0 0.4 uh, between the wedge at the end of expiration and the esophageal pressure at the end of expiration. That's significant. The, the squares in gray that you see in panel B are the, the patients that continue to have a high which uh, after correction, uh, and this is uh, the, the most significant uh, finding of our study. The um, esophageal pressure, as you see on the panel A, does not significantly 
correlate with mean pulmonary arterial pressure. Mean pulmonary arterial pressure can be increased by a variety of factors, um, not just the, the, the wedge. And uh, so by adjusting for that esophageal pressure, uh, you uh, are able to remove some of the patients from having PHs to see the, the blue squares, uh, but the association between the two, uh, esophageal pressure and mean pulmonary arterial pressure is not uh, as significant as we saw in panel B. And also the PVR, as we discussed before, there is no relationship between PVR and esophageal pressure since the transpulmonary gradient moves in the same direction for the mean pressure and the wedge at the same time. So it doesn't really change that component. Yep. And I was going to ask you this later, but any hypotheses on, you, you did mention there's a number of factors that impact mean pulmonary artery pressure, but any particular factor that, you know, we know impacts this more than the others? Um, no, I mean, obviously the, the precapillary component, uh, can certainly affect the mean pressure. High cardiac output can affect the, the, the mean pressure and the wedge can affect the mean pressure. So you have too many factors and the esophageal pressure, at least in these 53 patients, was didn't really significantly track with, uh, with the esophageal pressure. Got it. All right. So let's then move on and discuss the findings uh, that you describe in sort of figure three. So what were the variations in these hemodynamic variables with patient position, supine versus sitting. We, one of the, the things we tried to do here was that, hey, is there a way that we could predict the esophageal pressure? Uh, so we don't have to put the esophageal balloon in these patients. And would sitting be uh, a good uh, surrogate marker uh, of the adjusted uh, pressures by esophageal pressure or would the respiratory oscillation be a, a good uh, um, information a, a, or a good marker of uh, an elevated esophageal pressure? And uh, although uh, sitting um, significantly reduced the number of post-capillary uh, pH patients, it did not fully equate to the esophageal pressure adjusted measurements. As you can see here in this figure on, on the left side panel, the supine position, in blue, you have the wedge pressure with the A and the V waveforms. Uh, on top, you have the, obviously the EKG in yellow. And then you have the esophageal pressure in uh, red and the adjusted pressure. So that would be the wedge minus esophageal pressure in um, gray uh, at the end, which would be the adjusted value. In this case, let's say it was uh, around three. Uh, so when you adjusted the wedge, you went down from 25 at the end of expiration to a value of uh, three, four uh, millimeters of, uh, of mercury. Um, so then when you sat the patient, the vagal pressure drops, and um, we will then see probably in table two that is the end of expiration, the vagal pressure dropped from uh, 14 on average to five. Um, so that's a drop of nine millimeters of mercury. If you go back to uh, figure three, you, you see that in, uh, in, in figure three, the, the esophageal pressure drops, but that much. Uh, in this case, it dropped from uh, around 20 to around 10, and, uh, but the wedge also dropped. And when you adjust, you get uh, an adjusted value. But as you can see, the wedge in a sitting position adjusted is a little bit lower than in supine because in the study, we also found that 
changes in position um, in these obese individuals, um, the pressure drop, uh, uh, 70% of that is explained by a drop in the esophageal pressure, while 30% is due to other factors. So in this case, it dropped more than what would you expect by the, the dropping esophageal pressure. And likely that's pulling of blood in the lower extremity and decreasing the preload. Um, so just sitting, it, it kind of gets you to the more appropriate uh, values, but it's not the, the, the full um, correction. Um, so we uh, support uh, the use of uh, esophageal balloons and, and seating in the absence of having that availability readily available in your cath lab. So to summarize results, significant amount of one diagnosis of pH. That's huge, right? Your just diagnosis has changed, classification of pH has changed, and then more importantly, it's the you know what we may consider as a useful sort of surrogate maneuver to calculate or to do these measurements, which might be sitting, is maybe not as good as one would think, right? I think that's a very, is that, does that encompass broadly the findings? Yes, just think about these. I mean, when uh, the, the results, we analyze the results, we, this is uh, one of the, the, I think one of the main points uh, the, of the study is that, for example, in this patient in supine position on the left uh, panel there, you see uh, a pleural pressure of around 20. Um, imagine those patients in your ICU that you measure the wedge is 25. Right. And, and then you start diuresing them and the patient doesn't get any better. The creatinine goes up, the bicarb goes up. And you're like, how can this be possible? I mean, the wedge of 25, this patient should be getting better with diuresis. And then you put the esophageal balloon, you notice that the, the, the esophageal pressure is 20, you adjust, it's only wedge is five that patient uh, really doesn't need to have more diuresis. Um, yep. Yeah. It's that, it's that long-term fable, right? That sometimes incomplete or inadequate information can be more dangerous than no information, right? Yeah. So yeah, no, agreed. So, you know, I'm going to ask you um, shortly to sort of close all this by saying, telling us how clinicians at that site can implement this, right? But before we go there, could you tell me some sort of um, shortcomings or some, uh, you know, things that you may do differently with the next study? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can take uh, this question. Um, uh, one of the shortcomings of uh, this study is actually it was a single center settings, and uh, we did not include patients from other centers. Um, the other shortcoming of the study is that we were very particular about the selection of patients in whom we want to insert those uh, esophageal balloon catheters. So we selected the patients with obesity, with elevated uh, pulmonary artery pressure. So we selected a group of patients who would benefit the most. And as such, in my opinion, and Dr. Tonelli's opinion, that could actually exaggerate or amplify the benefit from inserting those esophageal balloon catheters. So that's one of the shortcomings of the study. The other shortcoming of the study is that we did not include patients who were not obese and they were lean because we know that those patients, 
do not have elevation in their uh, intrathoracic pressure. And as such, we did not feel that inserting an esophageal balloon catheter in those subjects would change the hemodynamic classification. So we did not do that because we, we know that pleural pressure or intrathoracic pressure in normal individual is not high and is not expected to cause changes in the hemodynamic measures. Just to make a counterpoint, um, I would support and say, I'm not sure that's necessarily a limitation, right? In the sense that, yes, I understand it's an enriched population, but at the same time, this is the population where we would want to use the device and the measurements. And, and would, that, would yeah. that be a fair counter? Again, I'm asking from a clinical standpoint. Yeah, 100%. We wanted to select the patient who would benefit the most from this intervention and uh, who would have actually benefit from doing this. So I think right. that we should not like be doing this in everyone, only in right. particular group of patients. So, yeah. Yeah, for example, if you have a patient uh, that's uh, morbidly obese, uh, but the wedge is five, um, I mean, to realize that the intrathoracic pressure may be three, it doesn't really change the management. Um, um, so yeah, always putting patients into context. In, in the future, we'll also be including COPD, maybe some thoracic chest wall deformities and uh, ILD, other patients that may have higher intrathoracic uh, pressure besides obesity, uh, but that's kind of for the future. And I was going to posit maybe even, you know, this is always challenging with esophageal pressures, right, is your sort of local variations. And we always talk about it even when we're talking about deep hydration. So I wonder how much that would impact it even within the same patient. But I suppose that's a question for another time. Is that fair? Yes. So, all right. So as a clinician, um, as somebody who does pH, how do I implement this in our lab or in the practice? Where, where do we get the most benefit? Uh, and what do I watch out for? Or what to be careful about? Well, ICUs uh, nowadays are more and more comfortable with the placement of esophageal balloons for mechanical ventilation. So critical care physicians um, certainly have the skills and the nurses also to measure the esophageal pressure in the ICU setting. And also they put um, Swangan catheters for measurement of pressure in the, in the ICU. It can certainly be done in a raha catheterization because some of, most of these patients that we did, practically all of them, we did in the outpatient setting. But in the inpatient setting, it's certainly uh, not complicated for an ICU that is used to put this vaginal balloons. The vaginal balloons, we, we use benzocaine to numb the throat, uh, the lube gel in the nose, and then we advance the catheter to 35, 45 centimeters. We tend to measure the distance from a siphoid process to the earlobe to the nose. And then we advance the catheter, and, and then we, we, when we see the cardiac oscillations, we see negative deflection with inspiration and positive deflection with uh, expiration. We know we, we are in the right place. Um, we remove this little wire inside, and then we get the measurements in different positions we, we do, but um, certainly you just need it in a supine, and uh, it has to be at the same level you want to correct. So if you like the guidelines recommend measure everything at end of expiration, you want the end of expiration is a vaginal pressure, and then you subtract both, and then you get the adjusted measurement. You use a regular transducer, and you can use a regular uh, monitor that you have on the wall. So uh, 
it's really uh, easily uh, uh, applicable um, to uh, an, an ICU setting for sure. In a Raha catheterization, you obviously need to train your nurses and just to be sure that uh, that you have the, all the connections appropriately uh, in place and you're recording the waveforms because if you want to then do the, the analysis of the waveform, that will be the, the, the best uh, way of being sure you're getting the end of expiration and the end of expiration. Uh, in both the esophageal and, and, and uh, vascular pressures. Right, avoid the tendency to pick from different parts of the cycle or you'll over undercorrect. Okay, beautiful. Yeah. Well, Dr. Skirfan, Tanali, thank you so much for sharing the study. I have to say, and I always almost close by saying this, you know, doing research is hard. So thank you, this is painstaking work. And I just wanted to um, appreciate you for the work you've done and sounds like you have more ideas. So I look forward to seeing you know, your work uh, going forward in this area as well. Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. We're Bye. very delighted again. Thank you. Bye. Of course. Congratulations. Take Thank care. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.